All right, well, another Sunday, another day in Romans. So let's pray, because we need it. All right. Loving God, uh, thank you uh, for this gift of this day. Uh, thank you for the gift of this community. Uh, thank you for this gift to um, be together this morning. God, as we uh, now turn to the scriptures and wrestle with them together, uh, we uh, acknowledge that your spirit is here among us, and we uh, yield ourselves to your spirit. And we ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the way of Jesus. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, one day when I was in third or fourth grade, uh, uh, my dad showed up at my school to have lunch with me. I don't remember if this was one of those like organized school things uh, where parents came or if it was just kind of a spontaneous thing that my dad showed up, but my dad had lunch with me. My hunch is that my dad was at work this day because he showed up wearing a clerical collar. So if you're not familiar with that, it is like think of a Catholic priest, right? Like black suit, black shirt, and the white tab. Uh, not, that's not just a Catholic thing. Like lots of traditions do that. And so my dad wore this frequently. So my dad shows up in this very, 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 very small town, uh, elementary school, and is wearing this clerical collar and has lunch with me. And boy, did I become the attention of everybody that day. Lots of questions were directed my way, including the question of, is your dad a Catholic priest? To which I had to inform people, like, you know, they commit themselves to a life of celibacy, which would make my existence a miracle up there with Christ's own, yeah? I don't think I actually said that because I didn't understand all of those inner workings at that point. But nonetheless... Uh, so we fast forward to the end of the school day, and uh, our teacher's giving us announcements uh, for the rest of the day, and she informs us that at the local middle school, there's going to be all sorts of exotic animals that evening, including an alligator. Now, growing up in the middle of a cornfield in northern Indiana, this is as big as it gets, right? Like, to see an alligator in my own town, like, this is a big deal. And so I get home, my parents come home, and I'm, like, pleading with them. Can we go see all of these exotic animals and these alligators? Like, Dad, you're from Florida. Like, this is, this is your own sort of thing, right? I got the answer, no. <laughs> now, I was very, very upset about this. And uh, I was at the point of all of my third and fourth grade angst, and I was like letting my mom and dad know that I was frustrated about it. I had like enough wisdom as a third and fourth grader to like recognize that the level of my frustration was probably uncalled for, right? But I didn't have the wisdom of like dealing with that. And so like I found myself frustrated at the situation. I found myself frustrated at myself. And I was just, again, taking this out on, on both of my parents. At one point in the evening, my dad, uh, trying to like figure out what was going on, uh, threw out the question of, did I embarrass you today when I showed up at school? And again, me being a wise third and fourth grader knew that if I answered yes to this question, he would get off my back. But in my uh, lack of wisdom as a third and fourth grader, I didn't know the implications of this answer for him. And so I said, yes. And in that moment, uh, my dad didn't say anything but his body said everything, right? It was a moment of like, ah, I just wanted to be with you. I didn't mean to embarrass you. I didn't mean to make a big hubbub about it all. I'm really sorry about that. And again, he didn't say anything, but I knew in that moment, like, ah, and that just added on more and more frustration, right? In that moment, I channeled all of my frustration, my frustration about the alligator, my frustration about my own frustration, my frustration of disappointing my dad. Like, I channeled all of that onto my dad. And yet, my dad, for all of his own sorts of 
ups and downs throughout his life, responded so graciously in that moment. He stayed present. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't leave. He didn't tell me to leave. Like, he just stayed there. And, uh, like, eventually, like, wore me down with that presence and that, like, warmness that he exuded. See, in this story, uh, it wasn't my dad that needed to change. It was me. Um, my dad took on uh, all of my junk, my, my, my offense, if you will, all of my frustration, and he, he absorbed it. And yet he stayed really consistent, he stayed really present, he stayed really steadfast, he stayed really loving towards me. I share this story because uh, the sort of posture of my dad seems to be the posture of God that we see happening uh, within this thing that we call the Jesus story. Particularly as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 5. That at the heart of this Jesus story sits a God who, whose posture towards us, whose disposition towards us is one of consistency, one of patience, one of steadfastness, one of love. But before we get there, we have a little bit of catching up to do, because last week we looked at Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and we talked about how to embrace Jesus as Lord is to embrace the other, especially those who are different, uh, as siblings. And then, so to get from Romans 1, 1 through 17 to Romans 5, which we'll look at today, that means that we skipped over the back half of Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3, and Romans 4. And there's a lot that happens there, right? So let me give you a 30-second flyover of Romans chapter 1 through 4. First point, here's how and where the Gentiles have missed the mark. Point two, here's where and how Jews have missed the mark. And Paul sums it all up together saying, both of you are equally in need of God's grace. You're welcome. Just saved you uh, probably an hour's worth of reading there and all sorts of dense writing, right? But uh, I, I do encourage you, if you haven't read this recently or if you've never read it, perhaps go back and read it. And hold on to this because I think this can be a little bit of an anchor as you try and figure out Paul's brilliant but dense argument that he's making throughout all of this. And if you go back and read it, you might think, boy, Paul, you're awfully harsh here. <laughs> and he kind of is. But I think it's important to hold sight of the main question, the main tension that lies at the heart of Romans that we talked about last week. The main tension that exists in the book of Romans, uh, the letter of Romans, is how do we go about being the people of God together? Again, within this church community, there are these Jewish followers of Jesus, and there are these Gentile followers of Jesus, and both have the sense that like, this is how we follow Jesus, by being Jewish, or by living out our Gentile way of life. And both of them are trying to be the people of God together, and it's messy, right? And so Paul is trying to speak about how do we go about being the people of God together, and so he comes back to this place of like, Gentiles, here's where and how you've missed the mark. Jews, here's where and how you've missed the mark. All of you are in equal need of God's grace. Like, this isn't meant to be just a vague, general sort of cutting down at the knees. But, like, he has a purpose with this. He's pointing to something uh, new, something new that seems to be happening in the Jesus story. He's pointing to uh, a new reality that is beyond the ethnic div div divisions and differences that we often find ourselves living in. Yes, it's a story that continues the story of the people of God through the Jews. It's about Gentiles being grafted in, but it becomes this new sort of humanity. And so Paul is uh, doing the best that he can to like, work through all of these complicated differences and conflict to get us to a place of equal footing before God. Now, given all of that, we step into Romans 5, verse 1. And we read, Therefore, since we have been made righteous through his, meaning Jesus' faithfulness, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Uh, last week I mentioned that Romans uh, was not a theological treatise w- written within a vacuum to explain the inner workings of God. I stand by that. And yet, so much of our uh, understanding of the inner workings of God comes from Romans. And so I do think, uh, while this is a, a real-life letter written to real-life people dealing with a real-life situation, it is important to wrestle with these theological concepts that we get from Romans. So, fair warning, we're going to dive in deep here for a few minutes, okay? So can we take a deep breath? We're going to get in the weeds. We can handle it. All right. All right. Here we go. Romans 5, verse 1, again. Therefore, since we have been made righteous through his faithfulness, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have um, a very important phrase in this, that since we have been made righteous through his faithfulness. Uh, Now, depending on your translation that you're working with, uh, you might see an entirely different word in this phrase, and that be the word uh, justified or justification. Now, justification is a big, major theme all throughout Romans. Uh, it's, uh, it's a word that carries with it often like a courtroom sort of metaphor of a, a judge issuing some sort of verdict and perhaps uh, moving somebody from one verdict to the next. Uh, it's, a, it's a word that will, will pop up repeatedly throughout Romans. But before we get there, we need to take a step back and look at another major theme throughout Romans. And that's this idea of righteousness, particularly God's righteousness. Uh, righteousness is a word that's always felt a bit elusive to me. Like, it's this big idea. It's this thing that we should strive for. It's this thing that we should embody in our life. But, like, I don't actually know what it is. And then uh, somebody recently explained it in a way that was so obvious it's almost embarrassing, right? Um, they said it's essentially doing what is right. <laughs> to be righteous means to do what's right. And I was like, oh, duh, you're right. <laughs> um, they apparently were righteous in that definition. Uh, it means to do what is right. It also can mean, like, to be faithful, So it can mean to do what's right. So you're walking down the sidewalk and you see a piece of trash and you do what's right. You pick it up and you find a new home for it, right? Uh, Or it means to be faithful, to live out some sort of promise towards uh, somebody that uh, you're in a relationship with. By the way, uh, we've been selling an awful lot of things on Facebook Marketplace. And a lot of people have said, yes, I will claim that and uh, please hold it for me. And so we say no to all sorts of other people, and then they never show up, okay? There's an awful lot of, like, lack of righteousness in the city of Canton, yeah? Which brings us back to Romans 1 through 4, yeah? Because it seems like so much of what Paul is trying to do is, is plead this case that, like, there's a lack of righteousness in the world. Um, that when we look around the world, when we look at ourselves, when we look at others, when we look at the systems that we've created, there's a lack of righteousness that exists within the world. We don't do what's right. Others aren't doing what's right. The systems that we've made aren't doing what is right. Now, to interject a very loaded word, this is often what's described as sin. (laughs) And I know that some of us have this sort of gut-level reaction to this word sin, particularly because of the way that it uh, was used in our upbringing. Sin has often been used as this thing to like beat us down, to point to like just what miserable failures of human beings we are. Uh, And like this has real implications. Uh, Like we have have friends uh, to this day who are like wrestling with their relationship to Christianity because of this. Um, They look at their life and they think of this idea of a sinner being in need of uh, saving. And they're like, I don't know that that fits with my life. I have empathy for this because just a few years ago, like I I was wrestling with these sorts of things as well. And uh, one particular day I was listening to a particularly scandalous preacher because that's what kind of fun I have in my life. 
And this was the, the kind of scandalous preacher who would say scandalous things like, well, sin isn't that big of a thing. Like, we don't really need to be saved. That, that sort of posture, right? And so I think he was actually dealing with this passage in Romans 1. So I was expecting him to, like, you know, jump through some major theological hoops to get through this. And he said, well, of course, of course we all sin. Of course there's a lack of righteousness. Like, just open your eyes and look around. Like, we are caught up in breaking ourselves and breaking each other and breaking the creation that God has given us. And I thought, oh, <laughs> he's right, isn't he? Like, if we can just step out of all of the religious baggage that we carry with this word sin or this term lack of righteousness and, like, open our eyes and be, like, gut-level honest with ourselves, I break myself each and every day. <laughs> I find ways of breaking others that I'm in relationship with. I find myself of breaking this creation that God has given us. The systems that we've created have br are breaking one another. And it, like, if you just read the headlines, you know that it's not just me, it's not just you, but it's all of us caught up in this together. And I don't know about you, but like, I'm really tired of that. <laughs> and for myself, like, I recognize like, I need to be saved or delivered or liberated from that in some way. Which brings us back to God's righteousness. Now, to put a little flesh and blood on this, what does God's righteousness look like? You'll appreciate that joke in just a second, by the way. Uh, if you remember last week's answer to the big question, it's the same. Because Paul comes back to this answer time and time again all throughout Romans. So much of Paul's argument is based on this idea of Jesus and his resurrection. Jesus being the flesh and blood. Yeah, that was the joke. Uh, so what does God's righteousness look like? It looks like Jesus. It looks like God taking on flesh and living among us in the person of Jesus. It looks like Jesus who lived the righteous life. Jesus who was the righteous one. Jesus who did what was right, who was faithful to the way of God, even up until the point of his death. Which means like Jesus faithfully loved those who were his enemies. That Jesus chose to love rather than to kill. That Jesus with his final breath cried out, Father, forgive them, rather than Father, uh, uh, avenge me. Like Jesus was the faithful one up into his death and then he finds himself living in this realm, we might even call it, of death. Like a capital D death. Like a, a power that has uh, uh, force over us. And God, who is righteous, looks at the situation. Because as Paul tells us earlier in Romans, that the wages of sin, the consequences of sin, the result of sin is death. And he looks at this one who did not sin, who is the righteous one, who now finds himself in this realm of death, and he goes, that's not right. <laughs> Jesus shouldn't be in the place of death, and so God raises Jesus up from this place of death and transfers him to this place of life. God, in raising Jesus, justifies Jesus. This is Jesus' justification of being raised from the dead and brought into a place of life. Okay, we come back up for air. We doing all right? We tracking so far? This is like real in the weeds here. Let's take another breath. We're going to dive back in just for a moment here. All right. All right. So that's the inner workings of like God and Jesus and righteousness and justification. But what about us? Because Romans 5 says, therefore, since we have been made righteous through his faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Now, Paul answers this question uh, a little bit earlier in Romans chapter 3. He says God's righteousness, uh, meaning God doing what is right, God's faithfulness, comes through the faithfulness or the, the, Jesus doing the right thing. For all who have faith in him, there is no distinction. So what about us? How are we made righteous? It's through having faith in Jesus. 
Now, um, faith like righteousness is often sort of like this elusive word. It can be a little bit slippery of like, how do we, what does it mean to have faith in something? Um, often faith is described as like the rearranging of the mental furniture in our head, right? Uh, and as somebody who loves thinking about rearranging mental furniture and like cares deeply about the right arrangement of mental furniture, I think that it has very little to do with faith. <laughs> but rather, uh, faith and this idea of trust go hand in hand. In fact, they can often be used interchangeably. And when we talk about faith as trust, we're talking about like giving ourselves to something. Living into something. Uh, a few years ago, before Pax was born, uh, Allie and I were, were, were in, in this conversation about having kids, and we thought, let's do one last big thing. Let's run a half marathon, because that's how exciting we are, right? Uh, and so we picked a date and picked a place in Columbus, and we're like, we're going to do this half marathon. And then I quickly realized I have no idea how to run a half marathon. If you've ever seen me run, it looks something comparable to a giraffe running in quicksand. Like, it's not a pretty sight. And so I, I, I quickly realized I needed help beyond myself. And so I turned to our very own Tyler Schrock, who uh, does not look like a giraffe running in quicksand. Like, he's actually very good at it. I said, can you help me out? And so he, puts, uh, so he talked to me about my goals, and he put together a running plan for me. And so, like, certain days I was supposed to run a certain amount, some days I was supposed to rest, some days I was supposed to do other activity, and then I had, like, a long run each day, or each week. So he hands me this, and we're talking through it, and I look, and I see that the longest I ever run at one point is 11 miles. And I scratch my head, and I go, Tyler, I don't mean to doubt you, um, but a half marathon's 13.1 miles, not 11 miles. I think you made a mistake. <laughs> He said, no, this is totally fine. Like, by the time you hit 11 miles, like, you'll have been in good enough shape that like, you, can, you can run the 13.1, no problem. Like, you, just have to have, you just have to trust the program, right? So I trusted the program. I did it pretty faithfully for, like, I don't know, like two or three months. And then we get to like, that last 100-yard stretch of the half marathon, and I just like, start weeping. <laughs> so I like, completed the hardest like, physical thing I've ever done in my life. And it was thanks to the faith that I had put in this program. It was thanks to the trust that I had put into it. It was thanks to the, the fact that I had given myself to it and lived into the reality of this program. And I think when Paul talks about having faith in Jesus, I think this is what he's talking about. To have faith in this Jesus story. To have trust in this Jesus story. To give ourselves to the Jesus story. To live into the reality of the Jesus story. The entirety of Jesus' life, his ministry, his teachings, his death, and ultimately his resurrection. Because when we have faith in our own sort of story, we recognize that we break ourselves and break others and break the world around us. But when we have faith, when we trust, when we give ourselves, when we live into the reality of the Jesus story, we find ourselves being led into a place of righteousness a place of justification, a place of life itself. So um, what does it mean to be made, or how do we go about being made righteous? Well, by giving ourselves to this Jesus story. See, the Jesus story saves, not because it changes God, but because it changes us. God doesn't need change. God has never needed to be changed. God loves us. God has always loved us. God will always love us. But it was us that needed to be changed. And so when Paul talks about God's righteousness, uh, like it's not meant to be this unattainable standard that's meant to beat us down. But God's righteousness is the basis for everything that God does. 
God will always do what is right because that's who God is. God is righteous and will always do what is right, including like taking on human flesh to live among us, to show us the way that leads to life. And this is where like we connect back to the story of me and my dad and the alligator. Uh, my dad in this, uh, in this story was, was a righteous dad, right? He did what was right. He took on all of the junk that I was carrying. He took it all on. He absorbed it. He didn't hold it against me. But he stayed present, consistent, steadfast, loving, and kind towards me and eventually wore me down to the place that we were brought back into like a whole relationship. Uh, as one New Testament scholar puts it, uh, this is what the love of God looks like. It looks like God has enemies, which Paul calls us later on in Romans chapter 5. And yet, God regards those enemies with kindness. It looks like humanity is in open rebellion against God, suppressing the truth and not acknowledging God's presence and goodness. Still, God takes the initiative. It looks like God reconciling us. The divine solution to the problem of human rebellion is ultimately to adopt us into God's family. We were enemies. Nonetheless, we are God's children. So now being made God's children, having been adopted into God's family, uh, I think that this means that we inherit the family business. <laughs> and in this uh, case, this means like the family business of peacemaking and reconciliation, which we see at the heart of the Jesus story. God who's wanting to make peace with us. God who's wanting to reconcile us back to God. And again, when we come back to the first readers of Romans, like the question that they're wrestling with is, how do we go about being the people of God together? Well, a pretty good first step is committing yourself to a life of peacemaking, to committing yourself to a life of reconciliation, to find a way of being the people of God together, despite of and in light of these differences that exist between Jew and Gentile. And for us, um, while we uh, certainly don't, aren't wrestling through the, the, the conflict and the uh, disagreements that exist around being Jew or Gentile, we certainly do have our own sort of conflicts and disagreements, yeah? Sometimes these range from really small conflicts and disagreements like what color do we paint the sanctuary or do we have the windows open on a Sunday morning, which, by the way, is a really hard decision to make at 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning uh, in May. But these exist all the way to like really big, like significant sort of conflicts and disagreements, even down to like theological implications of like what it means for some to be invited into the life of our community. And so what if when we approach these sorts of moments of conflict and disagreement, we approach them with a primary concern first of what does it look like to be a peacemaker and a reconciler rather than being quote-unquote right. Because again, we're part of the family business, which means we take our cues from God. And what we see with God is that God was right. <laughs> God was righteous. God was always in the right. And yet God's righteousness drove God to be steady and consistent and loving and patient towards us, eventually winning us over back into a whole and renewed relationship. And we recognize that it's entirely possible to be quote-unquote right and yet find ourselves in the wrong. Yeah. So what does this look like in like a practical sort of sense? Like to put flesh and blood on this. Uh... I wish there was a cookie cutter answer to this, uh, but there's not, right? Uh, life is complicated, it's complex, and all of the situations that we find ourselves in that call for peacemaking and reconciliation are really rather different. Uh, 
While there isn't like a cookie cutter answer, I do think that there's a cookie cutter posture uh, that we can take on as we seek to be peacemakers and reconcilers. And that comes back from this old German word, because it always does, right? Gelassenheit. Say that with me. Gelassenheit. Uh, this was a really, really important word to the early Anabaptists. And uh, as I'm told, because I'm no expert, surprisingly, uh, in Old German, uh, this, this is a hard word to uh, define. It's kind of like the Hebrew word shalom. Like it has so many different like, layers to it. And yet, uh, what seems to be the best sort of translation is the sense of like a yieldedness. And again, in this context, like a yieldedness to God and to God's spirit. And so while there isn't necessarily like a cookie cutter answer of how to be a peacemaker and a reconciler, I do think that this can be a, a sort of cookie cutter posture into what it means to be a peacemaker and a reconciler. Because we recognize that um, we don't own the family business quite yet, right? We're apprentices, <laughs> or as Jesus put it, puts it, we're disciples, we're learners. And so uh, to have a sense of yieldedness means that we pump the brakes like we do when we approach a yield sign. And we let Jesus have the right of way. And then we follow in his footsteps. And so uh, as apprentices, we don't call the shots. We don't figure this out quite yet. But instead, we take our cues from the master carpenter. And so uh, in a Sunday where we've been very uh, abstract, uh, I'll offer uh, a very concrete sort of practice for us. It's, it's one that we've uh, looked at even fairly recently. But, you know... We still need it. <laughs> so uh, it's a, a breath prayer that draws from one of Jesus' blessings and beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. A breath pair, prayer, a, a, a pairing of our breath with words that uh, functions in the symbiotic relationship of our breath, these words, and the spirit of God at work in us. And so we breathe in, blessed are the peacemakers, and breathe out, for they will be called children of God. I encourage you to find ways of incorporating this throughout your week. Um, maybe you do this on your commute rather than the podcast or the radio, and you just begin your day with a sense of yieldedness. Like, I'm yielding to God's spirit. May I be a peacemaker? May I be part of the family business? Or maybe you know that you have a particularly difficult or challenging conversation coming up, and you take just a couple minutes and you sit with this. And it's a sense of yielding yourself to the spirit of God to say, like, God, I want to be a peacemaker. God, I want to be a reconciler. Give me wisdom on how to go about doing this. Paul says that we were once enemies of God, and yet Jesus uh, entered into the story to make us family, uh, uh, to be children of God. Um, so we've been part of the family business, so uh, let's commit ourselves to this work, yeah? Uh, friends, we have been made righteous through Jesus. Uh, may we give ourselves to this Jesus story. Um, may we join in wholeheartedly in the family business as apprentices, taking our cues from the master carpenter. And ultimately, uh, may we have eyes to see uh, the ways that as we go about doing this, this ultimately brings about God's kingdom on earth right here, right now, as it is in heaven. Amen.